0: Why do you say it's four months to harvest? It's kind of an interesting text. We have made our way now to the Gospel of John. And so we get to look at some of the last of these questions in this series, Penetrating Questions of Jesus. I'll have one for you today, one for you in a couple of Sundays. And unfortunately, I won't be able to finish this series for you. There are probably six, seven, eight in the Gospel of John that we might look at, but we'll have two. And we come to this morning to one that uh, I think one of the things that really deters us from getting the impact of this text is that when we look into it, we are, in the, we are in the habit, I think, of thinking that what Jesus is doing is giving a prohibition. In other words, we're in the habit of thinking that what Jesus is saying is, don't say this. Don't say there are yet four months and then comes harvest. But in reality it's a question it's a question in the original text and it's a question even in your bible if you look at it more carefully and so this is where our question comes from today so have a look at this we're going to read it as a question but I'm really interested in your looking at the end of the verse where you're going to find a question mark but I'll tell you again our familiarity with this and the way we read it and the fact that we really haven't noticed that fact I think we tend to just read it as a statement in the negative a a command of Jesus don't be saying this But in reality, what Jesus is asking of them is, this is what you tend to say, isn't it? Look at it again. Matthew, or John chapter 4, verse 35. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Do you see the question mark? This is something that Jesus is talking to them about that he knows they tend to say. And then he goes on to give some of the corrective measures to the problem at hand. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the harvest Okay, the verse in your bulletin certainly prepares you for that. We can all understand the harvest, except sometimes I really think that, maybe I don't know if this is true, but it it just worries me sometimes that it is that in some of our big urban cities, people don't really realize there's such a thing as a harvest, I think. I think they just figure the grocery store. So if you want an ear of corn, you go to the grocery store and you find the ears of corn when they're in season, but a truck comes in and brings that, right? And you don't really think about the fact that a harvest, and in the Bible, you could never escape that fact because the land of Israel was completely dependent. It was an agrarian and pastoral uh, economy. In other words, they lived by their crops. You don't have a harvest, you don't eat, you don't eat, you don't live. And pastoral in the sense that there was sheep goats livestock this type of thing so our subject this morning is the harvest say not either or yet four months then cometh harvest have we thought about the harvest much well we think about the harvest maybe a little bit in a season like this where we've i i think i don't know about you but at least where i live we've had too much rain of course that's a human observation god's the one that turns on the showers and turns them off so it's his business but you think about that just a little bit when you see the corn, and you know the old uh, saying about knee high by the Fourth of July. And uh, I don't know what it is. I mean, over Memorial Day weekend, we had the opportunity to go out and visit John. And I either they have a different schedule or what. But that that corn out there, none of this knee high by the Fourth of July stuff. I mean, it was already way high that you couldn't see the deer in the field. Unbelievable, really, to look at all of that. But that's our subject: is the harvest this morning, and more specifically. Because we have to drill down to something. We're not going to just talk generally about the harvest and then not have some application, something that Jesus is trying to drive home by challenging these disciples about, here's what you say, isn't it? So more specifically, we're not just looking at the general subject of the harvest, but we're considering our vision for it. Do you notice that Jesus says, lift up your eyes? Our eyes are what we see with. And we have to ask ourselves the question this morning in relationship to the harvest. What do we see? What do we really see? What is our vision for the spiritual harvest? And Jesus wants to know this. I'm gonna just spit it out here right in the introduction so you can kind of see where this is all headed. Jesus wants to know why it is that you and I seem so unattuned to the harvest that's what Jesus wants to know. Hard question. Jesus wants to know why I and you. Why are we so indifferent? Why are we so unattuned to the harvest? So first of all this morning in the message first key thought I want to look at is the excuses we give. Really all of our thoughts this morning are going to be drawn from verse 35, although we'll look at some some secondary thoughts from some of the other verses, but First of all, we're going to see the excuses we give because I think almost certainly what's happening in this verse is that Jesus is citing another proverb. Now, you say another proverb. Well, yeah, if you drop down to verse 37, have a look at this because Jesus is something else. He says, and herein is that saying true. So here was something that was in common parlance. We do this all the time. We have little sayings to capture certain truths. And nothing was any different in their day, and so one of those sayings was one sows and another reaps well we know that that's true but there's a spiritual application of that when you come to this verse I think Jesus is talking about the same thing and the reason that I make that point is is there is some discussion among interpreters about this but here let me tell you this it doesn't really make much sense to view what Jesus is saying in terms of actually the month in which this saying was uttered because if you were going to observe that you would say well it had to be December in Israel and in that in that economy, that would be about right. You'd be December, and you'd have about four months, and then you would begin to see a harvest of some type, uh, some kind coming. This doesn't make much sense. It doesn't seem to comport very well with the context and the other details that w- that we have in the story, because here we find a picture of Jesus. Tim referenced this, and he's making his way from through Samaria making his way there, and he has to go through, the Bible says this, in the earlier, he's leaving Judea, he has to go through Samaria, that is to say, if he's not going to take the Jewish detour into Perea, as I've talked to you many, many times, cross the Jordan River down there about the area of Jericho, and come up on the other side, the eastern side of the Jordan River, to avoid Samaria. And why would they do that? Well, they would do that simply because, as it says in verse number 9, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. They didn't really want to be there. They didn't really want to intermix with them. They regarded them as half-breeds. And the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. But when the Bible tells us earlier in the chapter that Jesus must needs go through Samaria, we are forced to conclude that John is talking about something way more than geography. Because Jesus did not... In point of fact, Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. The typical Jewish detour would have taken him, as I've just described. He would have gone up into Perea on the other side of the river, traveled northward, and then at a certain point before the Sea of Galilee, he would have crossed back in and entered into Judea. But there is a divine appointment here that is talked about in this verse. And the Lord is talking about this whole idea of the harvest. And Jesus is on this journey, and it tells us that around midday, he comes to the well there in the vicinity of Sychar, Jacob's well. The Bible describes him as being weary with his journey, tired and undoubtedly hot because he doesn't have anything to draw with. The woman reminds him of this very fact, the well is deep. Well, I can tell you the well is deep. I've been there, I've seen it, drunken some of the water from it before. And I can tell you, if you don't have something up above or you don't have something kind of a a dipper of some kind, I I didn't even look to remind myself before the, the service, but it's deep. You don't have something, and Jesus didn't. He was weary. He was hot. It was noontime. So we're not getting the picture of December, which is a winter month. We're getting the picture, no, of kind of an arduous journey, which it really is. I mean, You think about some of the places that you might hike around here. We don't have a lot of level ground that you're just going to go on forever, right? I mean, if you're going to get up in these hills, you're going to have some effort put forth. And here he comes in the middle of the day. He's tired. He's thirsty. He's hot, wearied with his journey. He wants a drink of water. He doesn't have any means of getting that water when this woman comes up and she brings that to his attention. When when he says to her, "Give me to drink," and he starts talking about living water, she says, "You don't even have anything to draw with." How are you going to get that living water? So the details of the story just don't comport very well with the idea that this was December and Jesus was looking around at the fields and kind of reminding them, well, there's four months and then you'll have a harvest. No, it it seems to deal much better if we've got here kind of a saying that was in common parlance, a proverb of sorts that people would just sort of say, well, you know, it takes four months to produce a harvest. In the present tense and the fact that the question, as it's constructed in the original, requires a positive answer, it comes out exactly what I told you in the introduction of the message. He's saying to the disciples, this is what you tend to say, isn't it? Well, you don't get a harvest for four months. Now, why do people say that? Because we make excuses all the time. Do we, with regard to the harvest, make excuses i'm not really sure there's much other area of christian experience i mean if you know the lord as your personal savior maybe bible reading maybe faithfulness to devotions but i think these two go right hand in hand i'm not so sure that there's really any other area of christian experience that we don't find ourselves adept with making excuses why we don't why are we not involved in the harvest what vision do we have for the harvest? Why, why is it that we can go days and days on end and not be a part of the harvest, never really think about it, never really focus on it, when that's the Great Commission? And as you've heard this many times, unfortunately what happens even in churches like this, the Great Commission becomes the Great Omission because we can go days and weeks on end and never really have much heart, never really have much concern for the harvest, and we can invent Ten hundred reasons why we ought not to be involved. Why we can't witness. Why we can't give a track. Why we can't do this or that. And it's an affliction of us all. These words are the words of the procrastinator. It's the person who says, well, you know, it takes four months to, I'll do that later. You, You find this captured, I think, pretty well in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 4 where it says, the sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. Therefore shall he bring... Beg in harvest and have nothing. All right, think about this for a minute and just take this apart. The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. So he has a technical truth. It is cold. It is uncomfortable. It is inconvenient. The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. But the proverb tells us this veneer, This technical truth is really just something he's hiding by because the real problem is laziness. Isn't that what the proverb says? The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. Procrastination is something that we do all the time in respect to the harvest. And I want you to know something this morning. I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking to me. It's something that afflicts us all. And so when it comes to the spiritual harvest, we're no more more adept at making excuses in any other Christian endeavor, it seems, part of our Christian life than in this area. Are there some excuses that the disciples could have given that are a part of this story? Well, I find at least three. And theirs might not be yours, because we come up with so many different excuses that it's amazing. But think about this for a moment. First of all, they could have cited discomfort, you know, after all, it was uncomfortable. Verse number nine says, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. It, it was uncomfortable to talk to this woman. They they had a built-in antipathy. They had a built-in resistance. They had a built-in dislike. You know, everybody out there isn't like me or you. In fact, most of them aren't. In a lot of places we go, we come across people that they just not really people that we readily identify with, not that we, people that we feel we don't have a great deal of in common, and so uh, it's just uncomfortable to us. I find convention or custom, maybe you might say, in verse number 27, if you look at that verse. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman, yet no man said, what seekest thou or why talkest thou? Well, it just wasn't customary to do that. All right, think about this for a minute. First of all, it wasn't even customary for the woman to come to the well when she did because they would come either in the cool of the day in the morning or in the cool of the day again in the evening. This is work, folks. This is not like going in the bathroom or going to the kitchen sink and turning on a faucet or going to one of these high-priced refrigerators and punching in a, a glass under a spigot on the door, and immediately you've got cool water. No, if you're drawing water for your house, you've got to come to this place and you've got to... Have some buckets, you've got to have some kind of mechanism you're going to carry those things back with. If you don't think a gallon of water is heavy, try it sometime. What's a gallon of water weigh, about six pounds? 8.3. I knew it was more than I thought. And I here's something that to me is kind of humorous, but I mean, I have so many of these that it's just unbelievable. I can remember stuff my parents said. And at the time, I used to think, I don't know where they're getting that from. I mean, I can remember my mom when they were at Tryon, North, Tryon North Carolina, and it was the, uh, the last place they really lived in retirement. And they'd go to the store and buy water, and she'd come in with these jugs of water from the, the, the thing, and she said, Oh, this is so heavy. Uh, you know, I'm young, I'm in my 20s or whatever, and I'm thinking, What is she talking about? Now I pick this thing up and think, Man, it's so heavy. Yeah, it's heavy, isn't it? There's some effort that's involved in this. And why did she come at noon? Well, she came at noon because it wasn't comfortable to come when all those other people were there. You can tell from the story she's not held in that well of a regard with people. She's obviously a woman of questionable morals. She's obviously a loose woman. Jesus says, this guy you're living with now, the only thing you've told me that's true is he's not your husband. You've had five husbands. Man, that's a track record, isn't it? I'm not sure, did he wear, did, did they wear her out or did she wear them out? I don't know, we don't get that detail in the story, but there's that, it's just not really comfortable to, 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 to be talking to somebody, it's against convention, it's against custom, this woman, you, you just don't do this kind of thing, and certainly not a rabbi, that's why they're really surprised when they come back and they see Jesus talking to this woman, they think, hokey joe, what's he doing, doesn't he know you're not supposed to do that? And then I think of inconvenience, verse number 31. Well, they were hungry. It wasn't for no reason that they went into the town to buy food. In fact, it's not outside the realm of reason to think that Jesus dispatched them to go do that. And so they come back, and did you ever notice that sometimes people can be interruptions? I mean, it just seems like sometimes you get caught at the worst time. The phone rings right when you're trying to get out the door. The workday has ended. You've got some place you have to be, and something happens. And I'm sure these guys, they were hungry. The journey was exacting. They wanted to get something to eat. They come back with this. Oh, Jesus is having this. There he goes again. He's talking to somebody. Uh, We do make excuses, don't we? There are all kinds of excuses, and... The thing is, folks, that what we need to do to get beyond this is is that we need to look within. I told you, this whole thing has to deal with vision. So I want to talk about some things that relate to vision that we can kind of grab a hold of in the literal realm and apply them spiritually. We need to look within because they had no sense of urgency. So we might say the problem was impaired vision. They had no sense of urgency. They just didn't see it. Impaired vision. Do you remember the name Paul Rader? He was an evangelist of, uh, no, of some notoriety. He was also at one time the pastor of the Moody Church in uh, Chicago. He told the story on one occasion of a tremendous uh, wheat harvest in Australia, but it was during the time of World War I, and there were so many people who responded to the call to arms that the harvest literally was lost it 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 just rotted in the field because there was no one to go out and get the harvest it was literally a case of of reap or rot urgency there is a need for urgency with respect to the harvest so we might say that the problem was impaired vision well i want to move us next to the second part of this and we'll sort of try to capture all the things now to bring this together but the encouragements that jesus gives you know we find them in the second part and the third part of verse number 35 and i have to say before i start talking about that i am just so glad for the patience of our savior because i think that we are all such failures at this we all are And yet, the Lord doesn't rebuke them. He challenges them. He speaks to them. He makes an appeal to the heart. He's patient. I'm really glad for that, aren't you? I mean, there are just a lot of times when you just don't need chastisement. And Jesus knows exactly the way to approach us. Jesus knows exactly. But I want to point out that the harvest is precious. Think about how precious the harvest is. I tried to underscore that earlier. I I was thinking this verse there's actually a verse that talks about this very thing in Deuteronomy it's chapter 33 and verse 14 and it says and for the precious fruits brought forth by the sun the harvest is precious but did you know that the harvest is also sensitive as I was just telling the story about Paul Rader and it's either reap or rot Jeremiah was burdened about this in chapter 8 and verse 20 when he said to the people the harvest has passed the summer has ended and we are not saved you know that the harvest is time sensitive i don't know how many people here have tomato bushes but when that tomato gets on there and it's it's going to get to a place where it's ripe i mean unless you're just picking them green like they do to send them to the store and turn that gas on in there I, i tell you it just yeah just because I, I, I grew up around the tomato sheds, and I just know what a good tomato is. And <laughs> you, you about have to go to the farmer's market or raise your own if you're going to get a good mater. But when you see that thing get ripe, you know, you better act. You've got a little margin there of a day or two, but you better not let it go on too long. And you've had peaches the same way, right? You get these peaches, you go out there, and you buy these peaches, and the first thing you know, you go in there and look, and you've got a couple of them underneath with some mold on them and some soft spots on them. The harvest is precious and the harvest is sensitive and the harvest is dear to the heart of Jesus. That's why Jesus in chapter 9 and verse 37 of Matthew's gospel said to them, the harvest truly is plenteous but the laborers are few. It burdened the heart of the Son of Man. The harvest is so plenteous. And here we are making excuses, and here we are saying, Well, you know, it takes four months to produce a harvest. Not now, not now. And Jesus looks around and he says, The harvest is plenteous, but how many people have a vision for it? The laborers are few. And so we see the backdrop of his own sowing with the woman. You have to see this or you really miss what's going on in the whole story. If you divorce this, what Jesus has this interaction with his disciples from what's already gone on in the story, you really miss this. But what has Jesus been doing? He's been sowing, has he not? Look back in verse number 10 and you find this that Jesus says to the woman, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Do you see how the dear Savior, who is under divine constraint, he must needs go through Samaria to make a divine appointment with this woman whose soul God has determined to secure into his kingdom. And he has a divine mission to impart to her the truth that she needs to know to respond to that call. And so he engages her in a conversation that takes it way past the water in the well. He starts it off ever so artfully, give me to drink. She's a little surprised that he's talking to her being a woman and being a Samaritan, but the conversation started get, starts to get going. And Jesus says to her, give me to drink. And the woman challenges him. She says, hey, you're a Jew. Why are you talking to me? Jews don't have any dealings with the Samaritans. And so Jesus turns ever so slightly the conversation to what he really wants to get to he said well if you knew who you were talking to you would ask him and he would give you to drink living water well she's intrigued but she doesn't understand she's not thinking yet in spiritual terms that truth really hasn't pervaded her heart yet and so you know how the story unfolds she says, "Well, you don't have anything to draw with how are you going to get that living water and she starts talking about her, their father jacob and all this kind of stuff and jesus says All continuing to move towards the heart of the matter, what he really wants to talk about. Well, you've got this water, verse 14, whosoever drinketh of this water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And she still doesn't get it. She says, sir, give me this water that I thirst not neither come hither to draw. She's still thinking about physical water. jesus said well go call your husband he probably could use a drink too go call your husband Uh uh-oh sore subject she says i have no husband he said well you got that one right because you've had five and the one you have now isn't your husband and folks really this is not my message but you know at some point you do have to get to this issue of sin you can't just lovey-dovey people into the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't work that way. That's not what salvation is. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. Until you see that, until you see that truth, until the blessed Holy Spirit of God reveals in your heart your need of Jesus Christ because you're a sinner lost and undone, It just the gospel just goes over your head. There's no interest in it. They that are whole have no need of a physician. I'm not interested in the church. I'm not interested in Jesus. I'm not interested in the gospel. Until that day comes that my eyes are opened and I see myself lost and undone and in need of a Savior and on my way to hell, and all of a sudden I'm interested. So you have to get to this subject sooner or later. Woman says, boy, I think you're a prophet. Jesus goes on to talk to her. He said, woman, believe me, the hour comes When neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem you shall worship the Father. See, he's been sowing. That's that's the whole thing that's been going on. He's dealing with this woman about her soul. And she finally gets to the place where it begins to make a point to her. And she begins to respond and she takes off and she says, I'm going to go into town. I'm going to get some other people to hear you. Because Jesus said, when she said the excuse about, well, when Messiah comes, he'll... He'll tell us all these things. That was her last excuse. Until Jesus gave her the bell ringer, I am he that speaketh to he. Oh, more than a prophet, more than just a religious teacher, the blessed Lamb of God, the promised Messiah, come to shed his blood on the cross of Salva- Calvary because the harvest is dear to the heart of God. The redemption of souls she says, wow, I, I, I got to go tell some of these people about that. And she takes off into the city to go tell them about it. Then you begin to see the response because Jesus is not only sowing, but Jesus is also reaping because if you'll notice in verse number 28, the woman left her water pot and went into the city. They, she told these people, come see a man which told me all things ever I did. Look at verse 30. They went out of the city and came unto him. You see, he's sowing and reaping. Jesus is already sowing, and Jesus is already reaping. And so that's why he tells the disciples, you need to secondly not just look within, because you've got a problem of impaired vision. You really don't have any sense of urgency about the spiritual harvest, but you need to look up. It says lift up your eyes, look up. Lift up your eyes, why do we need to do that, beloved? Because we all have tunnel vision. You know what tunnel vision is? I mean, now we're talking maybe about a more specific application of impaired vision, but tunnel vision, you know what that is? Well, it's sort of like you're looking in a tube, and you can see down that tube, but you don't see anything out here. Well, let's talk about rifle scopes for a minute. Because a lot of people here will be able to understand this illustration. And even if you're not a hunter, you'll be able to understand this illustration. Now, in your mind, you have an image of a scope, right? Pretty much everyone's seen a rifle scope before. What end is it bigger on? The end that's towards the muzzle or the end that's towards the eye? Well, it's bigger on the end that faces the muzzle. Why is that? Because when you look into that scope, you're looking into what is called the objective lens. That's just what your eye sees through. It goes through there where that light is brought in through that front lens. That's called the objective lens. It's bigger. Do you know why it's bigger, generally speaking? Do you know why bigger is better? It really is. Bigger is better because it determines what is called your field of view. What's that mean? Well, the same thing as when you buy a pair of binoculars. If you ever read what it's telling you there, 10 by 42 or something like that, it means you've got a 42-millimeter ocular lens or objective lens it means that you're going to have so much field of view at a particular yardage well do you know how important that is do you know how important it is when you're sitting out there cold and your teeth are chattering and all of a sudden you see that deer you think might be the one you want you either see it with your naked eye or you see it through your binoculars and what you've got to do next you've got to acquire that in your scope I can't tell you how many times I've lost shots because I couldn't do that quickly enough because I didn't have enough field of view, a wide enough field of view. I have adopted the custom over time that when I'm out hunting, and especially depending on what my yardages are, I'll keep my magnification power turned down as low as I can in the beginning because the wa- the lower the magnification, the wider the field of view is. That's why hunters like not only 30-millimeter tubes if they can get them because they transmit more light, but hunters like a bigger objective lens. If you can afford a 50-millimeter or a quality scope, you've got more field of view. So that when you throw that thing up and you've got to acquire that deer, you've got a greater chance of doing that. Tunnel vision, that's what the problem is. Why does he tell them you need to look up? Well, because... All we tend to see is ourselves. We have a narrow little world we live in. We see our daily affairs. We see our concerns. We see our problems, many of which tend to be real. But we don't really see much else. And as I said in the very beginning in that verse that we have in the bulletin he that goeth forth that's our biggest problem see all we see is our own little world we don't go out there because he'll tell you what's going to happen if you go out there you're going to all of a sudden see some things your eyes are going to be off yourself you're going to look up you're going to lift up your eyes and look on the fields and see that they're already white unto harvest and you're going to get a burden i promise you it works that way you know i don't have a burden for souls well have you been out because if you go out there, it's going to take your eyes off of you. It's going to put your eyes on them. You're going to see a needy world. You're going to see people dying and lost. And this is what the Lord says to them. And then the, the last thing he tells them is he said, you need to look around. You need to look on the fields. You not only need to get your eyes off yourself, but you need to look at what's around you. And this is what I started to talk about a moment ago. It's kind of interesting to me that the Lord uses a, a word here that's different from the standard word, word to Look. He says, look, as it says, look on the fields for they are white unto harvest, but it's a different word than the normal word for look, and it's a a word that emphasizes the fact that you look at this thing until you take it all in. You figure out what it is you're looking at. It's not just a casual glimpse. It's looking at it attentively to really take it in. And if you really do this, if I really do this, let me quickly give you four thoughts that are gonna happen. Number one, you're gonna find out the harvest is now, not four months from now. He says the fields are white already. Under I say not ye there are yet four months unto harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields for they are white already. You see the word already. And it very well, it very well may be that that. Word already goes with the next verse. At least that's the way it tends to be set up in the original language. And if we took it that way, it's right at the end of the verse, you'll notice this. If we took it that way, we'd have the idea, and he that reapeth already receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. It's what Jesus was doing. He'd been out there sowing. And now the people were coming and he was beginning to reap. The people were, he says, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, they're white already. It's almost as if the imagery is the disciples look out there and they see these men, these other people starting to come because Jesus has witnessed to this woman. She's gone out and she's gotten others to come and you look out there and you see their white clothing. It's like seeing a cotton field. You see these people coming. He's not here. I really wanted him to hear this. Maybe somebody will tell him, but You know, years ago, I learned something from Jim Page. And what it was is really pretty simple, and probably a lot of people know it, but I didn't really think about it until Jim said it one day to me. And that is, is, if you know when the flowers bloom, you can have something in your yard blooming all summer. It seems kind of simple, but I never really thought about it that way. But if you know that's true, and you want something to... Kind of really lift your spirits after all the deadness of winter. In the early spring, you plant and you have daffodils and you have tulips. You eat a little further into the, sun, into the spring, mid spring, and you have hyacinth. You get into the late spring and you have lilies and bluebells. And I'm not naming them all, I'm just giving you an example. You get into the early summer and the, the lovely iris, the beautiful iris appear. You get into the midsummer and you have the prolific, and I mean prolific, Rose of Sharon. You get into the late summer, gladiolas. See, there's always a harvest. That's the point that Jesus is making. That guy that you talk out to out there tomorrow might not be ready. But somewhere there's somebody who is. And here's the whole problem, beloved. The problem is not that there's not a harvest. There is a harvest. Somebody's always ready. It just involves work finding them. And it involves consistency and faithfulness because you don't always just get one that's ready to drop off the vine. And here it is, that saying fulfilled that one sows and another reaps, Jesus said. So the harvest is now. Secondly, the rewards are eternal. You know, our lives are so narrow. All we want to do is consider our problems, the things that are a part of tomorrow. And you have to do that. I understand you have to do that but I just keep going back I've told the story before and I'll just have to make an allusion to it in the message this morning but I keep thinking back to that story about when Steve Jobs wanted to recruit John Scully well who was Steve Jobs and his sidekick had a fledgling computer company that wasn't that successful at that point but the big difference was Steve Jobs had a vision And he challenged Scully, and he challenged Scully, and Scully wouldn't come. He's CEO of Pepsi. Why's he interested in some fledgling computer company? Until the final time that Steve Jobs went to him and hit him with this. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water, or you do have a chance to do something that will change the world? Now think about that. Computers are changing the world, whether we like it or not. But if people can get geared up about that in the temporal realm, how come we can't figure out that, you know, there's something really exciting about investing and spending your time in those things that last forever? And one of those songs that we sang this morning challenged us, when we're there before the Lord, are we going to have anything to show? Thirdly, the labor is shared which I told you earlier is likely another proverb, verse number 37. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. Well, you know, if you're really honest about that, that's something that's meant to be encouraging, but something we don't always like. Why is that? Well, you'd rather reap, wouldn't you? I mean, if you're going to go out there and knock on doors or visit people, you'd rather have somebody ready, wouldn't you? It's easier that way. Holy Spirit's prepared them. Somebody else has done all the preparatory work with the soil and sowed the seed and now the holy spirit's brought them to that place of being ready and wow this was easy you ever had an experience like that you witness to somebody it's like they're just ready to get saved you say wow this is easy why don't i do this more often but you didn't get there like that somebody else did a lot of work somebody's done a ton of praying somebody sowed the seed the labor is shared but i'll tell you something i count it as an encouragement you know if you're a preacher I I don't know how you really help but keep from having this as a real source of encouragement because you sow all the time you sow on Wednesdays you sow on Sundays you sow all the time preaching God's word maybe it's your part to see an abundant harvest maybe it's your part to sow maybe you see more of one than you do the other but Jesus says you know they both have a part one doesn't happen without the other. Well done now, good and faithful servant. You can't have the harvest without somebody that does the work ahead of time. And the result is joy. He says that he that soweth, in verse 36, and he that reapeth may rejoice together. Isn't this what our verse in the bulletin said? He that goeth forth and reapeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again. He that goeth forth and soweth, I'm sorry, precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing bringing his sheaves with him and I like that story in Luke chapter 15 which is exactly what Jesus was trying to illustrate and just to be sure they got the point he told it three times oh they murmured because he spoke to sinners and Jesus said well let me tell you a story did you ever notice how the shepherd will leave the ninety and nine you ever notice how the shepherd knowing he has one that's misplaced knowing he has one that's lost it's as if the ninety and nine don't really mean anything to him which is not true but he becomes so passionate he becomes so burdened about retrieving that lost sheep and when he finally founds it he wants his friends to rejoice with him and Jesus says you know that's what that's the way it is in heaven one person repents and there's joy In the presence of God over one person who repents. Okay, if you didn't get that, then I'll tell you about the guy, the lady that had ten coins and lost one. I can really get into that story because I'm going to show you something right here. I know you think this is flaky, but this has been my faithful companion for more years than I can tell you, and it's nothing more than a $5 paper mate pen. But I'm attached to it. And I get upset if I can't find it. My wife will tell you I've been known to drive down from the house to the office to get it and be sure I didn't lose it. We went over Thursday night to see Ed Whelan in his new digs, I guess you would say. And we got over there to the place, and you're supposed to sign in the visitor book. Well, I'm used to that, so I reached for my pen. It wasn't there. I reached in my pocket. It wasn't there. No, no pocket on the shirt, polo shirt. Lots of times I just have it tucked in here where the buttons are. Reach there, not there. Reach in my pocket, not there. My wife said, I really thought I saw that pen earlier this afternoon. Where have we been? Couldn't find it in the car. Where have we been? She ups and picks her phone up and calls Chick-fil-A, which we had been to get our supper, and she had them go over to the table and look. I comes back and says I'm really sorry I don't see the pen I said well it has to be home it has to be home because I know I wrote with it. it has to be at the church because I know I had it so I can get into this story the woman has 10 coins and they're a lot more valuable probably than a paper made pen And she sweeps, lights a candle and sweeps the house, searching for that coin until she finally finds it. And when she finds it, she wants everybody to rejoice with her. And Jesus said, that's exactly how it is in heaven. And if you didn't get that, you old curmudgeon Pharisees who always want to criticize and condemn me because I'm the friend of sinners and I'm willing to talk to these people that you don't consider worthy. Let me tell you a story about a man that had two sons. And you know the story of the parable of the prodigal son. And at the end that old the older brother, the one who was so stiff, the one who resembled the Pharisees, all came home, heard the dancing, heard the joy, heard the music. What in the world is going on? Hey, your brother is home. Time to rejoice, right? And all he had was a scowl on his face. And his father says to him, it was fit, it was meat that we should rejoice. Your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Can't you get into that? And you see, when these four things come to us, the harvest is now, the rewards are eternal, the labor is shared, the result is joy, it brings renewed vision, which is just what we need. Isn't it so? I mean, it doesn't really matter how long you are around the things of the Lord. Life swallows us up, doesn't it? We become overcome with our surroundings, our problems, our cares, our busyness, our routine. And we don't do these things. We don't look within to identify the fact that we're slipping and we're losing any sense of urgency with respect to the harvest. We don't look up to get our eyes off of ourselves and our own narrow world. And we don't look around to see the fields. But if you do, you get a renewed vision, which is exactly where we are and exactly what we need. And so Jesus now, you're going to be maybe in a position to take the question in exactly the way Jesus says it to the disciples. This is what you say, isn't it? Why do you say there are four months till harvest? Why do you do that? Why do you procrastinate? Why do you make excuses? Why, my child, can I not get you interested in the thing that's dearest to my heart? If I didn't tell you some background to why I want to use these words, you would just think they were secular. I'm not sure that's totally true because I'm not sure of the spiritual status, and there may have been a spiritual status there for the person who authored the words. He was a 16th century British naval captain and explorer. His name was Sir Francis Drake. But where you encounter the words most of the time are not in connection with Sir Francis Drake, even though he was the one who said them. You encounter them because there was a missionary. Her name was Jeanie Courier, And in one of her prayer letters, home. She quoted these words. Listen to them. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrive safely because we have sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery. We're losing sight of land. We shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this day you've given to us and for the privilege of considering yet another of these incredibly powerful, penetrating questions of Jesus. It hits hard. It hits home. Hits us in a place where we're all tender and soft because it happens to everyone here. Thank you for your gentleness with your own disciples but thank you for confronting them so that we might be confronted too. To ask ourselves a really tough question. Why it is we say that? Why it is we have so many excuses? Why we can't be involved? Why we can't be faithful? Why we can't be interested in souls? And I pray right from this very pulpit to the back pew that you'll give us forgiveness. You'll give us cleansing. You'll help us to have renewed vision. You'll help us to identify any problems that the Holy Spirit has pointed to here today and help us to be willing to act on that. Probably the most simple commitment that we can make this morning, Lord, is just to go. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. And I'll tell you, folks, here's our problem. When we're around people, if we are, We're conscious of all kinds of things. We're conscious of what they look like. We're conscious of what kind of clothes they wear. We're conscious if they look scrungy. We're conscious if they smell bad. We're always conscious of lots of things. But how soul conscious are we? That's the problem. And I understand that it's true of everyone here. There aren't any exceptions. Everyone needs renewed vision. But our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and it may be that God has spoken to you in a very significant way. Maybe beyond just understanding that, yes, we all need to be more faithful, we all need to be more soul conscious, we all need to have a greater vision for the lost. Maybe the Lord has prompted you in some way that's just kind of personal to your life. You know about it. God's been dealing with you about it. And God's spoken to you about it here today. Like I said, probably the toughest part is just to go.